Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidinol, founder of Leading Australian Podcast Agency and 2021 Australian Podcast Awards finalists, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way, pursue your passion, and why there's really nothing better. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. As an adopted child growing up in the US, it didn't take long for today's guest to realise that the playing field is uneven. After learning how to play politics at a young age, Macy Schmidt, the founder of the Broadway Sinfonietta, used every opportunity created and given to her to work her way up in the cutthroat world of Broadway. Now, Macy's elevating other female-identifying and women-of-colour musicians through her work. In today's episode, Macy shares what it's like being the only woman of colour in the room, how she made it in the world of theatre, and why we shouldn't be burning ourselves out over things that don't ignite us. For those of you who haven't yet posted about our podcast on your socials, or if you're new here, please do take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs and help us in our mission to empower you all to pursue what you're most passionate about through entrepreneurship. Okay, peers, without further ado, welcome Macy. Macy, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. Amazing. So, you know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all of the incredible work you're doing in music and business, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I'm very honored to have been asked. Amazing. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, as of late, I have a couple different lines to my career. Um, My main career has been on Broadway as a music director and orchestrator. 
Um, I've been a Broadway musician. The show that I was working on before the pandemic was Tina, the Tina Turner musical. And during the pandemic, I founded a company, an orchestra that has uh, since took off and become kind of my primary focus and line of work. And um, now I have started doing a lot of producing, executive producing and running this orchestra. So um, I've always kind of had a business mindset and have somewhat recently found a way to marry that with music and the work that I was doing on Broadway into kind of this other hybrid career that I'm feeling very excited about. So exciting. No, I love that. And I think I just can't wait to dive deeper into your story and into the entrepreneurial journey and the business. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Very good question. I grew up in Houston, Texas. I am adopted. I I often say I like won the parent lottery. Um, my my parents are just absolutely the best. Um, I grew up in a pretty religious upbringing in Houston. Um, I went to a very religious private school in Houston, um, where a lot of the things that are like my um, passions and values and priorities now were not really prioritized in that community. Um, you know, I, I went to the kind of school where like we would close down school for the day to all go support the sports team, but like there's no orchestra at the school. <laughs> um, and I also, you know, I went to a school where I realized as I got into high school very much that like connections and money and status and who your parents were kind of like pulled the strings behind the scenes of how all of this works together. And I, I really like, um, I, very, I felt kind of like a fish out of water for most of my school experience, kind of like bucking against that. For a while, I was very resentful of it. And now I'm very appreciative of it because I think it really, really taught me how to operate. First of all, it taught me how to operate in the entertainment industry, right? Because I would often ask my parents if I could transfer to public school, which like I was on like a partial scholarship at this great academic school. I'm sure they were like, of course not. You are, you're staying at the school. And I, I had this thing in my mind where I was like, well, at public schools, everyone's probably treated equally and everyone has equal opportunities and everything's amazing and merit-based. And when I moved to New York, I was like, well, I'll just graduate from the school and go off to New York where everything will be amazing and equitable and merit-based. Obviously, that's not really how the world works. And I've learned that my bubble was kind of representative of most of the world. Um, and I think that actually I learned a lot of really early valuable lessons about how to hold your own when that is not the case, how to like interact and exist in the world. And this was true in entertainment show business In show business. I mean, it's, it's tough out there, but in business, it's like a whole other set of like, you have to really play the politics. And I think I'm realizing as an adult now that I learned kind of from a very early childhood age, how to play the politics. So all of that is, as all that is more useful than I thought it was. It always is, isn't it? And I just think I just loved your answer to that question. I love asking it because I think the way we grew up, where we grew up, how we grew up, who our parents were, they all just, all these factors like so influence just who we are firstly. And then also what we choose to do with our lives and how we choose to go about it. And I love that for you, it seems to be like you just nurturing yourself and gaining all these skills that were real life skills, you know, which is often things that we miss out on during that time or in high school or when we're growing up, you know, what do you think is the number one most valuable lesson or skill that your adopted parents or your parents taught you? Hmm. 
That's a beautiful question. I think they taught me and encouraged me to put myself out there all the time, to ask for what you want. The worst thing somebody can say is no. And, you know, my mother taught me how to send a cold email. You know, like, like when I would be trying to get a scholarship to college, we would look together on LinkedIn and find, we would, you know, the, the playing field is not even, you can't just send in an application. Who is the person on LinkedIn who's going to choose a scholarship? How do I write a compelling letter to that person? And like from a very early age, I think that they supported going after things proactively instead of waiting for things to come to you. And they've both done that in their lives and they've taught me how to do it too. How can we get better at proactively going after what we want? You know, I feel like there's so much competition out there. Our peers out there listening might agree. And sometimes we can feel just like we're not enough or perhaps we're not the right person for that role or that job or whatever it may business, whatever it may be. You know, how can we kind of navigate through that? I think it's about overcoming fear of like, what is the worst possible outcome in our brains, right? Like the, if you proactively go after something that you want, I ask myself this all the time, like, what is the worst case scenario? Usually it's no response, right? Usually the worst case scenario isn't actually no, it's a nothing. And a nothing is where I already am. So the worst case scenario is where I already am. And then it's just like, not that scary anymore. I, I, I feel like things that seem intimidating like a cold email. It's like you you send that email, you go after this thing, probably the worst case scenario is you stay exactly where you are. And the best case scenario is it changes your whole life. And so I think that like figuring out each of our relationships to the fear that is keeping us back from being proactive in that way is the way to do it. I don't think we necessarily get rid of the fear, but choosing to override it sometimes is kind of how I try to do it. And you do it so well. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Clearly you do as well. Uh (laughs) <laughs> we try, we try. I wanted to have a bit deeper into your story. So you've had this beautiful upbringing of which you were kind of pushing and pulling against, but now in hindsight, you realize kind of how much it taught you about yourself and the world around you. And then you go off, I think you went to the University of Florida. You did a Bachelor of Arts in Music Theory. Can you talk to us a little bit about your decision to move or, you know, to go to the University of Florida and what that time in college was like for you and I guess what it taught you about, I guess, the world around you or more about yourself, like what was that time like for you? Totally. Um, so first of all, why I chose Florida. Growing up in Houston, we always, we lived in Florida for about three years, three very formative years. It was um, like kindergarten through second grade. We lived not that far from Disney World. And this was a time when an annual pass to Disney World cost like nothing. Oh. Like now I think it's really expensive, but then it was like, you pay $300 for the year and you get unlimited access to Disney World. It was like amazing. <laughs> and we like lived on the beach and by Disney. And like, I... I definitely have like frozen that era in my mind as like the golden <laughs> era. And so as I like got older in school, I just had this thing in my mind that was a well, little Florida is perfect. <laughs> Place <laughs> to be. Florida is but... not perfect. <laughs> I know now, very not perfect. But, you know, I always wanted to get back there. And my dad, my parents are athletes. So my dad, we would always go to like the football games. Like my parents participated as sports fans of Florida because it was like the nearby team to be a fan of. And I, I don't know. I, I wanted to go there and I knew I needed a scholarship to go out of state. I really did not like Texas. I will be frank. I still do not like Texas. And I wanted to get out of there. And, you know, with my academics, I could have gone to school for free in Texas. So, you know, my parents always told me, if you want to leave here, it has to be covered. And so I got a pretty extensive, almost full ride scholarship to Florida. I studied music theory, but in order to get that scholarship, I actually had to go as an 
opera major. I, I cringe as I said that because I realize I actually usually don't publicly let people on to the fact that my degree is kind of in opera because in like the music world, then people try to like rope oh. you into <laughs> singing. Don't rope me in, please. please. No, yeah. no, please. Well, you know, I, I studied classical voice in, um, privately when I was in high school. I always really loved it. But what I loved was not performance. It was the study of music. I wanted to be in music. I wanted the relationship between the page and the sound is still to this day, like my, just my favorite thing in the world. I think it's so cool. I'm such a nerd. But you can't get a scholarship for music theory because you aren't actually going and competing and performing and winning the school money. You get scholarships for performative things. And so I auditioned and was given this music scholarship and first semester switched my major to music theory. I guess we found some sort of loophole that we kept that scholarship. <laughs> but even like my voice teacher at the time would, would call attention to, I love being in music, studying music, but like I just hated performing and it's not stage fright. I'm not a particularly afraid person I just didn't have find any joy in it whatsoever so went there and really the most important thing that happened to me that first year was finding theater again um in high school I had a drama teacher who was very harmful as a kind of drama teacher who had a type in her mind of who like plays the lead roles and had like she all kind of every trope stereotype of like the harmful drama teacher here existed there and I had a really just terrible experience with theater, even though I loved it. I would listen to Broadway cast albums. And then my, my school theater experience was just very traumatic. And so when I went off to college, I was like, classical music only. I don't want to do this theater thing. Those people are crazy. Classical music is serene. It's peaceful. <laughs> and then I'm so grateful for this, but I got right back into it. There were some students in the theater school who came to me and said that the production was in the Heights. And they were like, you seem maybe Latina and you play the piano. You must be qualified to come music direct our production of In the Heights. And I was like, pretty much none of those things are true, but that sounds fun. Not, you know, um, I'm a little bit ambiguous. Um, and I did it. I was completely unqualified to do it, but I did it. And I loved it. I fell deeply in love with it. And then at the end of that freshman year, I decided I want to move to New York and get a job on Broadway. Like right now, I want to do it right now. And I applied for like a hundred internships. I was like, well, internship is the way in. Music isn't the way in. Everyone wants to do that. Got to get an internship, meet everyone, and then transition out. And actually, I was thinking about this just the other day because this person actually added me on LinkedIn. But I had a, a, the guy who ran the theater school, the kind of like head professor there. I went to him and asked for a recommendation letter to use for these internships. I was a freshman. And he was like, in fewer words, you're a freshman. Great, cute that you think you want to do this. Why don't we hook you up with a local internship at like the Gainesville Theater instead? And I was like, thank you. I, I know what I want to do. And I got the internship, moved to New York, posted on Facebook groups to find couches to sleep on in Manhattan. And I started working on Broadway and I never really left. I would kind of fly back and forth to Gainesville to finish my degree as fast as possible, which was around three years. And it was like completely my dream come true and have been working in the Broadway industry since then. I think of college as like that first year launch pad. And as I was assisting music directors in the city, one really formative mentor said to me, like, you know, if you go back to school and you're like, to some degree, taking out some loans, paying for this, the jobs that you dream of getting, you're not going to learn how to get there. And that was true. I have kind of a complicated relationship with education and all that comes with that. Before the age that I would have graduated a traditional four-year degree, I started lecturing music theory at Pace University here in the city and teaching freshmen this same subject, which was really special and full circle. So glad I buttoned up that degree, logistically speaking, in order to be able to do that. 
Oh my goodness, Macy, just so many things come from that. And I just, I just love your story. I think one of the key things that stands out to me is just that relentless kind of just, you know what, this is what I want and I'm going to go and get it. And I think as a freshman in particular, when we don't really know who we are, we're trying to figure out what life is about, let alone what career is about. You know, I think for you, you clearly had so much conviction, but when that teacher who at the time, it's like your teachers or your mentors didn't support you, that could have been so easy for you to just go, you know what, all good. I should get realistic. And like, you know, maybe I will just do an internship locally and whatnot. What advice would you give to our peers out there listening who feel like they just can't find it within themselves or they're struggling to find it within themselves to take it to that next level, you know, to really back themselves. That's super hard to do. Like what advice would you give to us? I would say if you feel this thing, if you feel this, this instinct, this kernel that knows you want something, you know that you want it, you can see yourself there, you have this vision of what you want to be doing. Anybody who tries to dissuade you from doing it is threatened by the chance that you will succeed. And I don't think they're consciously, I don't think this teacher was like, I'm threatened by this freshman. No, but I think it's, it's like, this is going to sound a little bit cynical, maybe a little bit arrogant, but probably something deep inside that fully grown adult at the time was like, I never did this. And so I don't, why should I encourage this other person to do it? And, you know, I think that I was primed to know how to override that because of this high school drama teacher who, when I asked if I could, instead of being in the musical that year, can I shadow the conductor and learn what that's all about? She said, no. And I look back and I, I'm just kind of like really aghast at educators who don't want to open doors and be encouraging. Um, last weekend, I got to give a talk at a theater conference in Atlanta to wow. thousands of theater educators on this very topic. And it was <laughs> one of the most consummating moments of my whole life. <laughs> can imagine. But it's hard to trust yourself. I think it comes more naturally to some people than others. But like at the end of the day, you are the person who's going to make it happen for you. And of course, like we all need mentors and like guiding hands and stepping stones and we all need help getting there but like no one wants to see you succeed as much as you do or you should want to and and i think just learning to trust yourself and when people discourage you learning to see like well what is the filter through why they're telling me this what is like the reason that you would not want to see me succeed and then like put that away put that away how can we get better at trusting ourselves that's a hard question wow how can we get better at trusting ourselves? This may or may not be a very good answer, but for me, it's kind of like everything. You have to practice to get good at anything, right? In music, you have to practice to get better. And in this, I think you have to practice to get better. When you trust yourself in small ways, and then the result of that is what you wanted to see, it's reinforcing that like our instincts are guiding us for a reason. Our dreams are not coincidental. The things that you wonder if you're capable of, you probably are. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's scary. I, I feel like... Scary. It's tough. Yeah. There's so many systems in place to make us think that one thing is like the ceiling of what we can achieve. And it just isn't. And, and you know, it's hard. Like, it's hard to be something, to, to go for something that you can't, haven't seen be done, that you, are, like, that you don't have a direct role model in. But also, it's hard. I don't, I don't have like an easy answer for how we can trust ourselves more, except that it's worth it and practice it in small ways. Beautifully said. I love that. So you're on Broadway, but you're on the back end of Broadway. <laughs> Just bringing us <laughs> so back. Broadway. So she made it to Broadway right now. She, you're on Broadway. Broadway. 
you are young and you are on Broadway, but the back end, you're like faculty pianoist. You're obviously you're now doing talks and it's all happening. Where did this idea for the Broadway Sinfonietta come about? Correct me if I'm wrong. I think you moved to New York. It was 2018 or during that time. And then in 2020, mid, you know, mid pandemic is when you started your business. Can you talk to us a little bit about that transition there from just kind of being more like employed by others to employing others? Different thing. Yes. Well, first of all, that, that phrasing you choose, like that is the key. It's funny. My, my ceiling has been like shifting kind of in each phase of life where it was like, there was a moment where just being in the room on a Broadway musical was like it. I was like, if I reach that, I'm at the top of the mountain. <laughs> and at that point in life, that was the top of the mountain. I still look back at that at my Broadway debut with fondness of the, the feeling of the top of the mountain. And, you know, I, I really wanted to orchestrate music, which is of the roles in a Broadway music department, really one of the hardest things to get into because there's not really an assistant or an associate position to that. It's not formally taught. It is exclusively passed down by mentorship. And as we know, people tend to mentor people who look like and remind us of ourselves. Historically, I mean, I did some research on the demographics of orchestrators on Broadway in the last 20 years. In the last 20 years, out of like, I think thousands, close to thousands, in the high hundreds of orchestrator jobs, seven have gone to women. All seven have been white women. There has never been a woman of color or lead orchestrator on Broadway. Wow. And so it's a pretty hard thing to crack into. And there's something that happens to you when you are draining yourself out creatively for a vision, for a hamster wheel that is someone else's. You know, the, the ecosystem of a Broadway musical is there are producers at the top, and then there are arts workers all the, at the different levels all the way through this pyramid that are making money for those producers. That said, the industry wouldn't function without those producers. None of the, those arts workers would have jobs without those producers. But even in the micro ecosystem of the music team, it's like, you know, I, I was not the music supervisor in this particular room and I loved it. I loved contributing to it. And I started to kind of realize as I moved on to a couple other shows that I really was consistently the only woman, woman of color that I saw do in any of the rooms that I was working in. And I realized that many of the big shows that I had been brought on to were very much um, ethnically associated shows, we'll say, right? Like the Tina Turner musical or Aida or like shows that were in that style. And I would get called to orchestrate stuff in like the Motown style with the assumption that I'm fluent in that style, which like I came up on like the Disney orchestra sound. Like that's what I'm like studied and trained in. And I was like, huh, okay, there's something interesting there. And so pandemic happens, the, the combination of these two things, one was having space off the hamster wheel to breathe, to not be draining out your creative juice for a project that is, you know, you're invested in, you care about, but at the end of the day is someone else's vision. And that same summer was the murder of George Floyd. And so all of a sudden, Broadway is almost exclusively talking about Black lives, the lives of people of color, and where we are failing. And I felt like all these organizations were popping up to try to fix this, even in the music space. As I saw women advance in the music space, the kind of front leaders of that were almost always white women. And as I saw people of color advance in the music space, the kind of front leaders of that were almost always men of color. And I was kind of like, we're, we're not advancing in this conversation the way that we should be. And so actually, the idea for the Sinfonietta didn't really start as the, a company. It started as like a statement I wanted to make. I wanted to do this video. I wanted to find as many women of color players as I could to contribute to it. And this was not like people I knew, friends of friends in the network, because that's kind of already how the network gets problematic. I, I spent like 
hours watching recital videos from Harlem School of the Arts flute students to like cold message people, players who I like they're playing and, and kind of build a combination of, of people to, to do this and wanted to put out this video and take a, a chart that I'd wanted to arrange that really was in like a very big capital B Broadway style, like the big, like traditionally white, like Barbara Streisand orchestra style. And did that video. And I, you know, I, I knew I wanted the orchestra to be an entity that continued, but really I was so focused on this one video and this one statement and this one song. And I was very control freak about it because I was like, if a bunch of women of color are going to come out and do this thing, like every detail has to be polished and quality. And like, I, we have to make sure everything is of immense quality. Think 10 times as hard about it. And when that video came out, the response was way more than I even could have imagined. Um, CBS Sunday morning picked up and premiered the entire length of the video. We did a spot on NBC talking about it all of a sudden, like, press and brands and, you know, response in, in the community, but also out of the community. Since we launched, most of the highest level work we've done has been brand partnerships, pop recording, live engagements that have nothing to do with Broadway. Um, you know, we did a holiday partnership with Bloomingdale's or like performed at a like live concert with Jordan Sparks. And it's like, none of this has anything to do with Broadway. Um, but as time has gone on since then it's been formalizing more and more into a company and a business and now is kind of growing into ways that are not even associated with performance but the original driving factor was the combination of the pandemic and the black lives matter conversation was like finally room to be like what do i care about what do i want to say what do i want to make and now there's nothing else on my plate like i can do it oh, and you did it omg and we, we did it you, and, yeah you did it and it's so so damn cool. And I think for so many of the amazing women of color out there listening, I mean, myself, this resonates. I was getting chills when you were talking about, you know, all the collabs and everything that's been happening and just even your thought process, you finding that gap, you know, from a business perspective, even like where this niche that wasn't serviced you know it was just kind of left untapped and you kind of bring it together and string it all together it's just so cool to see I can only imagine you came up against you know the struggles and whatnot people thinking maybe it's not right or you can't do it or or perhaps when you've launched after that first massive explosion you know what's next how can you live up to that how do you keep topping that there's so much that goes into play when it goes from project to wow, this is a full-blown thing now. What were some of those early challenges and struggles like for you? And how did you navigate through them, especially whilst navigating through a pandemic? Like the last two years have been wild for all of us. There were a lot of struggles with this and doing it during a pandemic was like, it made it 20 times harder than it would have been. But, but also I think that it was so much harder to pull this off in a pandemic. Something I did not want to do is I did not want to put out another Zoom box video. This was like summer 2020. We had seen it. We had seen the Zoombox music videos. And I was like, people are going to scroll right by that. <laughs> and so I was like, how do we get in a real recording studio with an orchestra where people have to blow air through their instruments and do it safely? So the, there were so many challenges to make sure that was done safely. And at the same time, the fact that it was a pandemic really kind of like cleared the landscape for that piece of content to stand out in a way that a year prior it would not have you know, scrolling through and seeing like an orchestra in a studio with like a high quality, like beautiful 4K editing that jumps out at you because that was not really the content being put out there. There were and are lots of challenges. One of them being that, you know, as performance kind of bounced back, we've seen a lot of like starts and stops. We've seen a lot of starts and cancellations, a lot of waves. <laughs> so many waves. <laughs> so many waves. Can't believe we're still in a wave. But 
you know, to that end, we are fortunate that like we started as a recording orchestra. So, you know, the bread and butter is not in live performance. So, you know, we were kind of actually well positioned to, as live things shut down, be like, well, we're here to support you as a recording orchestra. But some of the things that have been a challenge, I was surprised by some pushback by like prominent folks in my industry who really are positioned as like leaders on some of the like social impact topics that are what the Symphony Net is founded on. It threw me. I was really, really shocked by like, you know, obvious partners that have a, a, a foothold in the social impact space would not want to partner or would not want to be aligned or allied. So I really had to learn how to be okay without that and how to suddenly be responsible for individual gig or project instances, like the employment of like 20 people during a pandemic when like there's not that much like work flowing in, but also even like now, like we do a live gala. I mean, our contracts have gotten gradually more and more airtight thanks to our brilliant operations director, Colleen, but you know, if we show up to a gala and like the orchestra is being mistreated or like there's not, you know, not breaks, there's not food, there's not these sorts of things. And it's like, oh, I've put myself in a position to be responsible for like artists' well-being. And that has been pretty scary because you're used to only focusing on the arts. So there's just been so many things to learn and figure out. When your business is based on services provided by human beings, you have to be a lot more human about how to run it because they're not machines, they're human beings. Where like if I was like inventing a product and like machines were churning out this product, that would be so much easier. But with this, you have to find a way to turn a profit. You have to find a way to be sustainable and like give immense compassion, thoughtfulness, and care to every single person providing their skills because the entity only exists because of their skills and their willingness to contribute. It has to be a lot more human than I feel like a lot of startups have the privilege of being. It's hard. <laughs> it's tough. You know, and I, resonate, <laughs> I just resonate with this so much. I think service-based companies in general, but then even more so those that are based on like talent. You've got a group of like such talented people and they're the talent themselves. And it's how do we showcase their talent? How do we look after these amazing people? But then also how do we run ops? How do we run this company? How do we make sure cash flow is happening? How do we put money into people's pockets that it's just, there's so much to work through. Was there ever a moment for you where you just felt so overwhelmed and, you know, that I always like to talk about the dark side of business has taken over and you've just kind of thought, can I really do this? Like, there is so much to think about. Has that ever happened to you? And I guess, you know, for our peers out there listening who feel like they're at that point where it's just all too much and they just don't know if they can really keep going or if it's for them, what would be your advice to us? Well, I will say the can I do this voice is like, like in perpetual existence, right? Like that doesn't even come and go. That's always there. It's just kind of like choosing to keep it on like a low enough volume that you don't actually (laughs) affect your behavior, but it's always there. (laughs) And, you know, as far as like the dark underbelly of it, this past December, I was extremely surprised and extremely honored to wind up on the Forbes 30 under 30 list in music for founding this orchestra, for founding this company, which the music list historic in the last 10 years of this list has been very commercial. It's been very pop. And I noticed that the people on it have usually been like pop stars, pop music producers, or people who have like a very traditional business structure, like founded a talent agency, management company, label, something like that. And we had this kind of like launch event where we got to meet all the other people on this list. And I was like over the moon in validation that like something so non-commercial would be considered for this list. And I showed up and I will tell you like maybe 50 to 100 times that evening, I was asked what I'm doing to scale. I remember the word scaling so many times in my life than that one night. <laughs> and I'm like, 
what, what, what do you mean? They're like, yeah, I mean, how, how are you scaling the orchestra? I'm like, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's an orchestra. <laughs> and yep. I will say, being on the other side of that now, actually, that question inspired me to go like, dive headfirst into educating myself on venture capital and design a business plan for how this orchestra will grow and profitize over the next decade. But for the first two weeks of that, I was like, what are they talking about? Like, what am I doing here? I, I was like, oh, these people have like ventures. There's a very clear path to profitability. There's a very clear path to like becoming global. And so I was like simultaneously so excited to be in this community on this list and also so like, oh my goodness, like I'm so small fish here. Like, what am I even doing in this room? And so there was, there was a week of kind of being like, can this grow? Should it just be this? Should it just be this orchestra? And I need to just get over that. What is the potential here? And I think that like a lesson I've taken from that is like, when you're in the dark underbelly place of like, can I continue to do this? In my experience, at least, that is usually the precursor to figuring out exactly how to do it. Like, and it feels so good then when you're on the other side of it. Like that's the, that's the before moment. So my advice to people is like, treat it as a before moment. Um, something that I do that is incredibly cheesy, but personally for me, incredibly effective is I will sometimes force myself to write a paragraph about something, about a situation, pretending it is five, 10 years down the road and everything about the situation went my way. I did something in December, which is I kind of paused from work and I realized I needed to get out of the hamster wheel again, like I'd done going into the pandemic to figure out what is this next step, this next phase. And every day in December, I made myself write down an idea for what the symphony could expand to um, that was like way beyond being a performance orchestra. And I, I had to write down one thing per day, whether it was good or bad. And I had to write a paragraph pretending it's 20 years from now and the thing was wildly successful. And then on January 1st, I went through and chose two or three of those paragraphs and was like, this is what we're pursuing. This is like what we're going after. And I found that like it, when you're in the trenches of it, actively visualizing, what does it look like if this is the before to like my absolute golden era and everything goes my way? And then sometimes it does. And sometimes it does. It's so powerful, Macy. I love that. You mentioned that you chose three of the bunch of the 30, however many you did. How do we get clear on what that vision is that we want to actually pursue? That's a huge question. Part of it, I think, is that that instinct about what you where, where you find yourself most enjoying your time. Like, I have really been leaning into the business of it all because I, I started by wanting to be on Broadway, wanting to be an artist and show business is very bad at teaching artists how to be businesses. Very, very bad. It's like every artist yeah. is like, you, we are all our own businesses and it's, it's kind of like a, there's a weird stigma around being an artist in show business and like doing something else either on the side or tangentially. Like, you know, if you're successful, you are only an artist. You only do this. You're so successful in your art that you're just overflowing in offers to do your art. And that's just it. And like, sometimes that is it. And I've always loved business. I've always wanted to build businesses. I've always felt an inclination for that. I always feel like in my past life or my next life, I'm an agent. <laughs> um, it happened or it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But I'm like, finally giving my permission, myself permission to be like, yes, I love music. I put a lot into getting where I am with music. And also when I'm doing a budget build, I like feel high on it. <laughs> like, I, and, so do I. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, Oh, I've been denying for years little like aspects of the things we do that bring you joy that aren't supposed to fit into the mold of like the way the thing you've chosen is supposed to look. And so when looking at those paragraphs and those ideas, there were some obvious things that are like, even if that doesn't work out, the process of getting there is going to require so many things that bring me joy that it's, 
it's going to be easy to try. And that was how I decided because it's like, if this thing does not happen, I will have known, I will have spent my time in a way that brought me joy or maybe brought me to something else or pivoted to something else. And then it's, it's about, then you don't feel like we were talking about earlier in this conversation. You don't feel as afraid to go for it. You don't feel as afraid to shoot for it because the journey organically is your purpose and makes you happy and feel aligned. Macy, you're so wise. You're so young. You're so wise. Like I'm just absolutely in awe about just all of these lessons and these like pearls of wisdom you're just giving to us. I know we talked about your upbringing and your parents and whatnot, but you just seem very centered and like you have this knowing. Where do you think that comes from for you and how can we cultivate that more within ourselves? Wow, that's a beautiful compliment. And I have to tell you, most people who know me intimately would tell you that that's hilarious and I'm utterly <laughs> manic. <laughs> like, I literally, like, I wake up in the middle of the night with like an urge to like stalk something on LinkedIn and like do not go back to sleep. Like I could not be less centered. So I'm really touched that I'm coming across that way. And that's <laughs> um, in all honesty, I think I've gotten more and more centered feeling as I continued with this venture because I would always read these like cheesy quotes and follow these cheesy Instagram accounts that were like, when you're in your purpose, everything is aligned. Everything will feel right. And when something doesn't go your way, you won't freak out about it because you'll be in your purpose. And I've always been like, wow, that must be nice for those people. (laughs) Good on them. (laughs) I think when I was in the like, climb the Broadway ladder hamster wheel of like working on everyone's projects, I was significantly more manic. It was like, I was very unstable. Pretty much anyone in my life can tell you I was very unstable. To some extent still am, but I feel less thrown when things don't happen perfectly because it's not about this one gig or this one project or this one next thing like i finally see a long game because it's the it's the purpose it's the it's the big picture and i'm like if next month sucks or next year sucks that's fine because i know what the long game looks like now and i know what my purpose is now and it's it really is like i finally feel like i'm doing not only what i was supposed to be doing quote unquote or meant to be doing but like the thing that authentically aligns all of my loves and passions into work, even though the combination of those things is not traditional. I don't know any orchestrators who are also producers and business owners. I don't think that's really a thing, but it's right for me. And so I just feel very happy all the time. I realize it's probably not that helpful for people to be like, everything's great. I feel happy, (laughs) but it's just, it's just about feeling like everything is just locked in and in sync. And it makes you feel like there's endless possibilities, but also that you don't need all those possibilities because you're so happy in the thing. And feeling both of those at once is so good. So good. It's, it's literally like magic. And I think yes. that's what gets us through the really dark times when we're growing yes. our businesses and we're trying to navigate through this wild, like the wild, wild west, you know? And I think it's that feeling, at least for myself and clearly for you as well, it's like that that feeling that just of that like inner peace almost that you know what I'm actually good even if we stayed in this exact position right now you know but obviously we've got the vision and whatnot for our peers out there listening who really just feel stuck and like they can't find that alignment and they don't know what their purpose is and they don't know how to align their passions like what advice would you give for our peers out there listening I'm gonna give very tangible advice because I know as a sort of person who listens to a lot of podcasts, probably similar to this one, follows all the inspiring Instagram accounts, being given vague advice is kind of not helpful. I'm very type A. I'm sure someone's listening to this who's very type A and wants homework. Like I go to my therapist and I say, give me homework. And, <laughs> and so I did this, this exercise that I did in December 
I did it to get out of a rut. I was in a rut being like, there's something more. I don't know what it is. And, you know, I'm sure anybody probably listening to this has been like preached to about manifesting. I will not preach to you about manifesting. But I think that like, like micro dosing manifesting kind of just like unlocks like, like you get to see what feels good and like i would say if you are feeling stuck if you are like what is the next thing i know there's something out there i want to feel like in the thing take a month and every single day write down a version of your life and i, I didn't even do like a five years from now i did like a 20 years from now i said like decades from now it was completely successful maybe i'm writing out the tail end of it to retire and like seeing it all fade away like what happened and write like a little fictional paragraph about how you feel about it 20 years from now and like just think about that one each day make yourself write something each day and do it for 30 days and on the first day of the next month read them and i would be willing to bet you reread something that's like oh my god that's it because that's completely what happened to me like last month so for everybody who is used to getting like a very vague, like inspiring, but not helpful answer to that question, that would be my like, take it or leave it for the type A people who actually need like a little assignment. It works for me. So take that or leave it. Do with it what you will. We love it. We love the tangible advice. Oh, Macy, you and I could talk for days, but I am mindful of your time. I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> you are delivering so like, I'm, like, I'm having a blast. I'm glad. <laughs> I've got a couple final questions for you. And the first one is, what has been your greatest failure and win to date? My, my greatest failure, which is a repeated failure, more, more of a toxic trait, is voluntarily pushing myself into burnout on things that are not my purpose all the time. My mind went to two or three instances that are like just tangibly failures. <laughs> and the things that made them failures is like consistently the same toxic trait. It's something comes up that you don't not like, but you don't like. And you're like, well, if nothing else comes up, I'll do this. And you are taking yourself off the table for something better to come up when that happens. And then you're just tired and unhappy and not in your purpose. And I have done this so many times. And then something is an epic failure. And it was because you settled thinking something better wouldn't come up and crashed and burned with it into like a flaming pile, which those all of my failures fit that exact formula. And my greatest win is the complete opposite of that. My greatest win has been clearing space, despite how stressful it is for someone who loves to be busy, to find the thing and then actionably go for and create the thing that is really what you want to do and be and say and create. And it is so hard, especially for people who love to be busy, who love to feel like there's so much going on. Like I wanted to show business and I'm a freelancer because I love that. And so that, that has been the biggest challenge for me, but by far the most rewarding thing of my life. I love it. Macy, over the last year and a half, since starting the business, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received so much recognition for your work. Clearly all your learnings and this clarity you've gained is just like, we are all learning so much from your journey that you've had and we're so grateful for it. And, you know, recently, as you mentioned, you were featured on the 2022 Forbes 30 under 30 list. What are three key pieces of advice that you would give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? I had this quote saved for a while that I used as a screensaver for things, even though I like didn't really do what it said, which was make make more like quiet moves and less big announcements. And I, you know, obviously ever age of social media, external validation, press, great. Press is great. I am like fortunate to have be becoming off of a wave of lovely press. 
but also press can sabotage the thing you're trying to build when you are making your choices based on external validation and not what you're trying to build. I am still not great at that. I would also say whatever the thing is, the idea is that you have, there are probably reasons you're telling yourself it's not going to succeed. And I did this, I had this idea in my mind far before the pandemic. If you think that your idea is not commercial enough, Forbes just put like an orchestra on the music list. If you think that you're, if you think that nobody will financially fund or support your idea, um, I cold emailed producers asking for money. We were not a nonprofit. So this was not tax deductible money. This was not investment money. This was not equity money. This was just sponsorship. I believe in you take this money, money. And every email came back with a yes. So I would say if you, whatever things you are creating in your mind that are reasons you don't think the thing will be successful, it's almost definitely all in your mind. Just put it to the side and ask anyways. And the third piece of advice I would give. Okay, I gave a tangible thing earlier with homework. So this one's going to be very like vague and like meta inspiring, but truly the cheesiest thing ever, the be true to yourself of it all runs very, very deep because you will constantly have to push against how your thing is supposed to look or how it's supposed to present to the world or how your career is supposed to look or it's just supposed to. You will constantly have to push against supposed to. And it comes back to the trusting yourself thing, like staying true to your vision of the thing, getting in line with what that is so that when somebody tells you something to the contrary and you know it's not right, you are not deterred, I think is like the winning ingredient to everything, regardless of what you're trying to do, whether you are trying to build a business or just find organic happiness. I think that that is it. That is it. Such valuable pieces of advice. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Macy, before I ask you the final question, for the incredible work you've done and that you're doing, for showing us, and particularly us, you know, young, ambitious women of color, people of color, ambitious millennials, whoever's listening in, that if we have that goal, that vision, and that dream, even if it may not be traditional, it may seem impossible, no one said it before, it absolutely is something that we can pursue and your story and what you're doing absolutely demonstrates that. And we really appreciate you for that. Thank you. That means the world to me because I do still sometimes feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm talking about. So I appreciate the kindness. It is so fun. None of us know, to be honest, we're all just making it up along the way. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the peers to peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? The value of pursuing what you're most passionate about. Well, you know, what's funny is for me when I was trying to think of a profound answer to that question, my brain actually went to as is the alternative pursuing something you're not passionate about. That sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I guess it's not really an answer, but like, you know, not to get all like extremely cheesy meta spiritual, but like we have one time to do this. You know, we have one time to be alive. And I feel like we have no shortage of examples on each side of the spectrum of workaholics who have no like wellness, happiness, well-being, like no love in their work. And then people who are maybe like clock out of a job every day and like are very like, happy, but don't care about the thing that they're doing. And I personally think that the value for something you're passionate about is that you get to have both 
I don't feel like I've ever worked a day in my life. And yet I feel like I'm working 24 hours a day at the same exact time. And so I think that being able to have both of those things at the same time, we only have like one shot to try to do that. And I just kind of can't imagine any degree of fulfillment in pursuing something you're not passionate about. So do it, like send the cold email, do it today. Do it today. Oh, Macy, you are absolutely awesome. Thank you so, so much. We have had an absolute blast. Thank you for having me. Of course. Where can we learn more about you and the Broadway Sinfonietta? Um, You can learn more about me or the Sinfonietta on Insta. I think both me and the Sinfonietta are most active on Insta. Um, Instagram at the Broadway Sinfonietta and Instagram at Macy J. Schmidt. Um, and subsequent websites for each, which will be linked on Insta. Perfect. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again. And for everyone else listening, we'll end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do. For more make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. Your peers.